What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Creating Wealth Podcast, where I, Kyle, from Kyle Curtin Real Estate, interview local top dogs in the real estate investing, wealth building, and personal finance industries. Let's build together. What's up, guys? The guest on this week's episode of the podcast is doing some really big things and has an amazing investing story so far. This is part one of the two-part interview because there is so much that we covered. Michael has owned and operated a hair salon franchise, was active in the short-term rental space, and is taking on much bigger commercial projects. In this episode, we get into Michael's experience in the franchise game, reusing your same investment principle over and over again, compounding lessons into your next projects, and so much more. There is a super interesting story in this episode, and I hope you enjoy. Let's jump right into the episode. What's up, guys? Welcome to episode 46 of the Creating Wealth Podcast. Today, we have the great pleasure of chatting with Michael Parks, the manager of the real estate syndication company, Spire Investment Properties. They're out of Boston, and he is as well a licensed Massachusetts real estate agent. What's going on, Michael? How's everything going? What's new? Awesome. Thanks, Kyle. I appreciate the introduction. Um, <laughs> everything's going super. It's a, it's a great Friday here in, uh, in Boston. This <laughs> it definitely is. Guys, we were just talking a couple minutes before it hit record and, uh, you know, about how nice it is right now and how it's not currently raining at the moment. <laughs> yeah. But in an hour, it probably will be. <laughs> the way it's going this year. <laughs> yep. But yeah, Michael, so, you know, if you could kind of start to jump in with like, you know, how did you get started, you know, in real estate altogether and, uh, you know, that kind of entrepreneurial, uh, what kind of gave you the spark? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I've, I've always had this entrepreneurial spirit and um, as much as I've, I've loved my day jobs that I've had, I've been a, a technology professional for many years and, and running IT departments, um, but I've, I've always just had this desire to run my own business. And uh, I started that actually back in 2008 in the Great Recession and said, well, I really would like to start my own business, but I'm not ready to leave my day job. So how do I, how do I create a business that is, you know, can largely run on its own and I can, I can manage the business without being in the business? And I, I looked at a lot of different options back then. I consulted with a, a franchise consultant at the time. I thought maybe a franchise would be a good idea because it's a proven business model and you just need to execute it, right? And I'm a good execution guy. So um, I ended up, believe it or not, purchasing hair salons. Uh, of all things, hair salons. Like I'm, I don't cut hair. Like I don't know what made me think that this was a great idea. But well, actually, I do know what made me think it was a great idea. It was the fact that I couldn't cut hair, and therefore I had to work on all the business aspects of the business rather than um, operating the business in their day to day. Because I couldn't teach people how to cut hair, let alone do it myself. So, um, so I did that. Uh, I a couple of franchise hair salons that are you know a large brand in the uh, in the industry. Opened two of them here in in southeastern Massachusetts, and uh, got them up and profitable. Learned a ton about recruiting. Learned a ton about marketing and um, and how to how to operate a business. And uh, it was a great experience. Got them profitable, but it just wasn't going to scale to a place where I could see myself doing this full time. 
And I was lucky enough and, and real estate became tight at that point. By the time 2012 rolled around, you know, all those retail spaces that were once vacant uh, filled up. And so it was really tough to find great real estate locations, which is a key for a hair salon business. So I, uh, I had the opportunity to sell it at a good profit. And I said, okay, that was a great experiment. Uh, made some money and learned a ton, but this isn't the business for me to keep moving on in. So uh, that was my first experiment into entrepreneurship and uh, and trying to build some some passive income. Wow, that's absolutely incredible! Oh my god, how was that in like kind of getting into like the franchise space? Like that, I don't really know much about it at this point, but like, do you kind of need like a lot of capital to start off to like open a franchise or like? Like, how does one kind of go about that? <laughs> yeah, so every franchise is different in terms of how much capital you need. But yeah, you definitely need, you know, this isn't a, you don't bootstrap it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're going to need to, <laughs> so a, a hair salon, you know, it, it's a few hundred thousand dollar business um, to, to get into. And, you know, that's, you're signing leases, lost in five. I mean, I was signing 10, 15 year leases. That was signing me up for literally a million dollars of liability. <laughs> and so you had to have enough credit to be able yeah. to, you know, sign up for that too. Um, and so, yeah, you, you need to have some capital to get started. Uh, you need to purchase the franchise itself, right? So there's a fee for that to get into the franchise. And those will range anywhere from, you know, the ones I looked at from, from twenty-five to a hundred thousand uh, dollars to purchase the franchise, but then it's then you got to pay for the build out of the space, all the equipment. You have to, you know, depending on the business, it may not be profitable day one, and that's the case with hair salons. It takes a while to build that business, so you have to build it up to profitability and be able to carry the losses until you get to profitability. You have to overinvest in marketing. So there was a you know, a whole uh, business plan that was put, you know, that was put together and the franchise helps a lot in putting that together because they, they know how the numbers should work. Yeah. Um, so they help you build your business plan and then you go execute it. And, you know, that's the thing that um, it just sounds easy. Just follow the formula, just execute, <laughs> just do the steps, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, some of those steps are particularly hard. Yeah. Like the, you know, they would say, well, just hire a manager to run your hair salon. And then that, that makes all the sense in the world. But if you think it's easy to hire a manager that knows how to cut hair, knows how to teach people to cut hair, knows how to, in many cases, be, you know, kind of a big sister to many of the other hairstylists that have challenges that they need help working through so that they can come to work and be productive and, um, and have enough business sense to be a manager of a hair salon, that's a hard thing to find. Okay. That is a very hard thing to find. So it's not as easy as just go hire somebody and let them do that. And, um, and so what, what I thought was going to be a very passive investment for me uh, turned out to be very active. I was going in there multiple times a week and on weekends, and it was another active job. And so I, there's got to be a better way. Like I wasn't planning on having two full-time jobs here. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it was one thing to boot, to do it for a little while and get it, get it rolling, but I didn't see the end, particularly as I wanted to continue to scale. So that's when I started moving toward, I think real estate's a better answer. <laughs> wow. That's absolutely incredible. You know, even like just the, like all that knowledge, like that fast, you know, it seems like it's kind of like a jumping in with both feet. Like, do you have to like really like a hundred percent commit to it? Like you're like, this is it. Like, you know, and, and like you mentioned, um, 
you know, just to have like that extra capital for, you know, if it isn't profitable on day one or, you know, not having certain people like hired, you know, because it might be difficult and the qualifications and stuff like it sounds like it's a lot of like challenges just kind of rolled up into into one. It is. And, you know, that I think that it it tends to be the way I learn and grow the best is to jump yeah. in, to put yeah. put myself out front put my, put my own, my own resources at risk and figure it out. I'm a doer, I'm an executor. And so, um, you know, I think some people study, study, study and never get to execution. And I I think I, I like, I've found a good balance of both. I want to make sure that I have a plan going in. I understand how executable it is and then execute on it. And, uh, and, uh, you know, the best laid plans always change after you start. So it's about <laughs> adjusting and, um, you know, using great network of people and that great network of resources uh, and help you ultimately achieve the objectives you want to achieve, even if it sometimes goes a little left or right from, from where you started. Uh, eventually, it's about getting to the, to the goals you set out. That's awesome. So just out of curiosity, like, was there other people that like you were able to go to like for questions and stuff, whether it be like people in your network or, you know, like, I guess the franchisors, maybe like, was there like yeah. kind of a guidance? Like if you were like, oh my God, like things are hitting the fan, like, what do I do? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's one of the great things about a franchise, at least a good franchise. And this was a good franchise. They have a lot of resources as the franchisor. Now you pay for them. Don't get me yeah. wrong. You, you paid for those, but um, the, they had good support. They had somebody local in the market I could lean on. And quite frankly, the other franchisees um, really came together as a community to help each other out. So we would oh, wow. meet regularly. We would talk about each of our challenges and each of us would have ideas as to how we solve those challenges. Um, so that was a good support system. And, and my professional network as a, as a, you know, someone who's been in a professional career for many years, I've got great contacts in finance, in banking and insurance and all the other aspects of of business that, um, you know, those all help as well when you need them. Yeah. Wow. That's incredibly interesting. Cause I was curious. I was like, (laughs) you know, like, do you buy like this franchise and stuff? And then like, are you just kind of on your own? Like, do you just have to kind of like, you know, follow the the model that like they give you or something? And then, you know, if you have questions, like you just kind of figure it out or. <laughs> well, there's definitely franchisors that are like that. You know, yeah. I don't know if you've ever watched The Profit. I I, I just, I love the show, The Profit. With I don't Marcus think so. I'll have to check it out. On CNBC. It, it's, it's, um it, it's a great, I love, I love the TV show. And, and sometimes uh, I've seen several times, actually, he's gone in with somebody who's, had a concept, a retail concept, and they've immediately gone and franchised it. And uh, their franchisees aren't being successful. And in some cases, they're not, their own stores aren't even being successful. Maybe the first (laughs) one was okay, but the second one's not doing so good. And, um, And Marcus always says, you franchise too early. You haven't proven the model. And you're not giving your franchisees the support they need. And when I look at what they're doing, it's a lot of what you just suggested, which is, you know, here, here's the, here's the brand. Here's the basics. Good yeah, luck. And figure it out. <laughs> you know, if the model's not proven and it's not codified, codified, you know, into procedures and steps and, or like, that's what you're paying for out of a franchiser. And um, if you're not savvy enough to vet a good franchiser, you could wind up with one of those guys that has little more than an idea yeah. and you're kind of on your own. 
And so I'm not sure you get the value out of that. That's, that's crazy especially for like that amount of capital being invested you know like <laughs> yeah yeah that's right i mean it's it's you know it's not a small investment i'd say the investment <laughs> in capital is sometimes pales in comparison to your investment in time <laughs> yeah <laughs> time frustration <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so that's why real estate to me has been a much better option <laughs> I think that's a perfect segue into uh, kind of how you got into your real estate career right sure. after that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I guess we'll kind of start at the beginning and we'll wind up of ultimately around real estate syndications, which is what I'm, I'm focused on today. Um, so I would say, you know, I think a lot of, like a lot of people say, geez, I'd love to have a vacation home, right? That sounds great. I'll just go buy a vacation home and then I'll rent it out and I'll, I'll, make the money on the rentals and then I can use it whenever I want to use it. And, uh, you know, and the rents will pay for the mortgage and pay for itself. And, you know, in 20 or 30 years, I'll, I'll have a vacation home my own that I didn't have to pay for, but I got to use. <laughs> and so I thought, Hey, that, that is a good idea. You know, this was 25 years ago. So I went and did it <laughs> 20 years ago. I went and bought a, a ski house up in New Hampshire at Loon Mountain. And, uh, in 2002 and it, you know, it was, I ski house was a lot of fun. And I did that. I rented it out and the rents did not pay for itself. <laughs> I would say they helped, but they didn't pay. Oh, right. you know, it didn't pay. It didn't pay the mortgage. Yeah. And what I also found is every time I wanted to use it, well, those are the times that it was rented or easily rented or rented at a high price, right? Christmas week, February vacation week, and, you know, all the other high, uh, high profile times that, you know, everybody wants to rent. That's when I want to use it. But then I had to rent it if I wanted the income. So what I, what I found was I wasn't renting it as much as I would like because I was using it more. Yeah. And then the other thing that I found is what's really different about a, a rental property that you use is it's, it's your stuff, right? It's like you're using it. It's your couch and your chair and your, like, and your silverware, everything that you like, you've put in there, you've made it so it's nice and comfortable for you. Yeah. And then you show up on a Friday night at eight o'clock to enjoy the weekend and you find out like uh, somebody just put a giant oil stain in the middle of the carpet. Oh. <laughs> and you're like, what? what am I going to do about that? Now I got to get a cleaner in here and clean it up. And cause I don't want to live like that. And so yeah. it's like this constant, like sinking feeling in your stomach when you walk in and you're like, what's broken, what's, what's missing, yeah. <laughs> what am I going to have to deal with? And it's totally different if you're doing like a long-term rental or, or, or even just a short-term rental that you're not using because yeah. it's like, okay, you check in on it on some regular basis, you have maintenance done, but you're not worried as much about the little stuff because, you know, at least for me, I like things really nice the way I like them. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to live in, you know, somebody, somebody else's mess. So exactly. Uh, I, I, I did that for a long time. I had that property for about 20 years and I rented it for 10 and then at that point, it got so tired from all the rentals, you know, just worn out that I was like, all right, I'm going to renovate it. And I completely renovated the whole house and, uh, and then stopped renting it and just used it and enjoyed it. And then ultimately sold it when the market was doing really well uh, a year or so ago. Nice. And, uh, <laughs> good profit on it, right? I made a good profit. But if I think about um, 
you know, what could I have done with that money had I put it into, let's say, um, multifamily rentals back then, or even the stock market, I would have done much better in other ways. Now, I did enjoy using the place, so that's yeah. great, but um, that's how I got started into rental properties is through that vacation rentals. That's super interesting. You know, I, one thing that really stuck out in there was, you know, if you wanted to buy like a vacation house like that, like having that balance of, you know, enjoying it for pleasure and vacation, as well as like, oh, well, you know, I could do that. Or if I want to collect, you know, the money from it, um, you know, or have it pay some of the mortgage, what have you, then, you know, I kind of have to keep it rented out. And then like when I wanted to use it, you know, it's a vacation, a holiday, whatever it is, like, well, I'd actually get more from it if I was renting it out. I feel like that's something that's not really talked about with yeah. short-term rentals, you know? <laughs> yeah, especially if it's something, a place that you plan to use, you know, then you start yeah. saying, well, geez, is it worth $2,000 for me to use it this week? Exactly. Collect the $2,000 and let somebody else use it this week. And, and then, and then when you start looking at it that way, you're thinking, well, if I had $2,000, maybe I would go do something different. Yeah. I mean, the other mm. thing is you, you wind up being really locked in to your vacation rental because you got so much invested up there, whether, you know, for me, it was a ski place. So you got season tickets, you, you know, ski passes, you got the, uh, aquatic club that you're a member of, you got all your gear, you got, all, you know, it's just everything you get all everything in the house costs like there's you're just very invested. And so to think about taking a vacation somewhere else, it's like, kind of already invested over here. Like, yeah. I don't know if I want to spend more to go somewhere else. So what I love now is this freedom of I've taken that money from my vacation rentals. I've poured it into apartments, my apartments that I never go to and, and just want to keep fully rented. Yep. Um, they make money. And then I use that money to go vacation wherever I want. And so for me, it's like this newfound freedom of, okay, well, we're going to do some vacations this year. Where are we going? Are you going to, you know, we can go anywhere. Like yeah. it doesn't, I don't have to go to Loon Mountain anymore. Although I still go occasionally because I do like it, but there's a lot of places to go now. Florida, <laughs> you know, all, the West, all kinds of places. So. Yeah. That's really interesting too. You know, like how you took that, that initial money and like just transferred a cut, like a couple different ways across, you know, the short-term rental and then, you know, putting it into something a bit more passive and like, I don't know, like that always blows me away. Like when you take the same principle, put it in a spot that's growing and then move it to somewhere else, you know, that it's growing a bit more and like it works more for convenience. And like you said, you know, and then to be able to extract the income from that to do the same thing that you wanted to do initially, you know, and go yeah. like on vacation and stuff, but you can do that everywhere and you still have your money. So like, I don't, I don't know, it's just, it's extremely interesting, you know, just to kind of like move that that money around and just have it grow in different places and, you know, be able to still have the vision that you were looking for, uh, maybe a little bit magnified. Yep. Yeah. That, that whole concept of uh, capital recycling, it's similar to what you're talking about, right? So the idea that you can uh, go in and then make some money with an investment and then get your capital or a good chunk of your capital back out, either through refinancing or, or through a sale and profit, what have you, roll it into something else that is also a good investment. So that, that capital recycling um, is a way to kind of, you know, make your investing career have a, a lot of legs versus, you know, if you, you kind of buy one thing and just hold it forever. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, you may do very well with it, but if you can figure out how to pull your capital out and reinvest it, now you start getting some significant gains. Yeah. That principle is really insane. You know, even like, I think uh, like Robert Kiyosaki talks about it in like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I'm pretty sure, you know, playing with like house money. Yeah. You know, like putting your capital in and then, you know, whatever it is, like, uh, you know, somehow getting it out of that asset, still keeping the asset and being able to use the same amount of money all over again. Yes, you know, it's exactly. Just, that's insane. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, and look, it's not like it's super easy to do. You have to of find course. ways to add value. Some, you know, the, look, the last ten years has been great in real estate in terms of just market appreciation helping. Yep. Um, so the the tailwinds have been there, and you know, I think the, um, you know, it's been more favorable in the last 10 years than it might be in the next 10 years. With that said, um, I still think that there's a lot of, a lot of good factors moving in the right direction for a multifamily. Um, yeah. the, the shortage, uh, and it depends on where you're talking about too, right? I mean, there's, there's some areas that are growing and some areas that are not growing. Um, and I think, you know, in, investing in areas with uh, income growth is helpful, job growth, population growth, those, those, those all create tailwinds for you, even if overall market pressures start to go the other way. Yeah, definitely. I feel like those are really huge when it comes to selecting a market, you know, like wherever you're looking, like just to be able to kind of find that data um, and be able to compare like one city to another. And like most of that data can be found online too, like pretty easily, you know, like, yep. <laughs> and it's, you know, pretty updated depending on where you go. Like if you have like a negative population growth percentage in one city and the other one is like 5% over the course of the year or something, well, that, you know, maybe could sway your decision. You know, if there's a couple other things, other factors that uh, kind of how those weigh each other out. So it, I feel like that's kind of something that's a little bit less talked about too, you know, is to just look a lot deeper than like, oh, you know, is this market affordable? Like, you know, how do I feel about it, whatever, but be able to kind of look into the data points and, and check out some of those things like population growth. And, um, yeah, I mean like, uh, like the tax rates and stuff like that. And like, just be able to kind of, kind of compare a lot of different cities together. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, I think a lot of factors that go into, uh, you know, where, where, what makes a good investment. And in fact, I've, um, I've got a short five-part video series called the Spire Simple Syndication System. Um, for your audience, if they want to grab it, they can at spireinvestmentproperties.com forward slash SSSS. Check it out, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <Yeah. laughs> so five short videos around different things to look for in a real estate syndication or real estate, really any real estate investment. Um, and and num number one on the list is markets and submarkets for all the reasons that you know we just talked about you just talked about. Um, and the thing is, you, there's never, it, it seems like there's never a perfect deal that matches everything, right? Yeah. So yeah, if you want to have the mark, be in the market and the sub market, like the hot, let's just take the, an example, like, you know, you want to be uh, in downtown Boston's not quite as hot as it was, but let's, you know, it, <laughs> it's still, you want to be in a prime location, downtown Boston, you know, low vacancy rates, uh, you know, really low cap rates, which basically means prices are really high. Yeah, that sounds great, but don't plan on having a whole lot of cash flow out of that on a regular basis. That's got to be, you know, either 
either highly leveraged and just hope for appreciation, or you got to have lower leverage to get cash flow out of it. And, you know, the return on your investment could be a lot lower when you just look at it from a cash perspective. But as we all know, Boston's a gateway city. There's a tremendous amount of, um, you know, even in spite of the pandemic with a lot of people moving to Southern cities and realizing they can be more mobile. I still personally think Boston's a, a great place with continued, you know, draw for population, particularly with our schools, uh, you know, colleges and our uh, medical and our tech and so forth. So um, pandemic aside, right, the, the idea is that sometimes the market that is so hot may be so expensive that it's hard to get what you want out of it. Um, yeah. A lot of institutional money comes in and it, uh, or foreign money where they're really just looking to park in U.S. real estate in these gateway cities. Makes it, makes it a lot harder to find something that cash flows for you, too. Exactly. And not even to mention, like, you know, there are a lot of other investors that are looking for that exact same thing, you know, that aren't like in these institutions and stuff like that. Like, um, you know, people doing like 1031 exchanges and looking for literally the same exact thing that you are. Like there's just yeah. the overall competitiveness to kind of look for that perfect property, you know, that's that checks right. all the boxes and yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I mean, and you know, I, we'll talk more about syndications, but a lot of syndicators and look, I'm one of them would, would love to find the property that is, uh, you know, hasn't perfect. had rents raised <laughs> in a couple of years kitchens, bathrooms, a little tired. Maybe the parking lot looks a little tired, right? Maybe you need some paint. Okay. So we can go in, we can add some amount of capital, do some light rehab, move the rent significantly, add a lot of value to the property without a lot of risk. Um, do it as units turn over so that the, uh, you know, the cash flow continues while you're continuing to renovate. It's basically like doing a flip times a hundred units. You yeah. know, <laughs> you're basically flipping unit by unit on a, on a major property, but you're doing them, doing them quick. Um, and pretty low risk. So but those are great. And, uh, you know, when you find them, you got to jump on them. Uh, a lot of times what's happens because everybody's looking for them, you're going to be pay like all that's already done. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you're already paying for it to all be done, there's nothing left for you to add value to. Yeah. You paid for it before you started. So uh, it's challenging. And, um, and I guess to, to bring it back to, you know, full cycle, I think some of those ex more expensive markets now, uh, the places to find your opportunities are in distressed assets because yeah. they're harder to, they're harder to buy. Right. So a distressed asset that's not, you know, may have 30, 40, 50% vacancy or hundred percent vacant. An asset like that has a lot less suitors. I mean, people need to figure out how to get a capital stack to buy that when there's no existing revenue or poor revenue and, and be able to turn it around. It's a higher risk situation. So those, I think in the, in the, hotter markets, those are still where you can find the opportunities, uh, other, unless you just pound the pavement so well that you, you get lucky on one <laughs> of the other ones, but, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, it's, um, it's really interesting. Like now that you say that too, like when you see some of those distressed assets out there, like the ones who take a crack at the challenge and try and figure it out are, you know, I'm sure you see it quite a bit, you know, are some of the ones that, uh, that it can really pay off for. You know, and other than people like just getting uh, like scared and nervous by it and like, all right, you know, screw that. Like, let's just keep looking. Like, let's not even bother. But the ones who are kind of daring enough to take on that challenge and figure out, you know, where those issues lie and and figure out how to solve those. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if, if they were all easy, everybody would do it and everybody's looking for the easy ones. So sometimes the uh, the rewards are in the harder ones. 
So yeah, it's, and, and look, the more you dig into them, the more you try to figure them out, the more you learn. And then, you know, whether that one works out, you take that, you roll that knowledge forward to the next one. And, um, you know, eventually you fig- you get one figured out and you make it work and, and you get the rewards that you would hope for. Yeah. That's the idea. <laughs> I feel like that's really the, the commodity is, you know, that knowledge that you get from all of those experience, whether they're good or bad, you know, and just be able to, to keep stacking that, you know, in every situation that you're in and just picking little things up here and there, you know, like you said, to take on to that, that next property, Um, you know, and if you didn't learn something like that from like two experiences before, you know, it might happen now, but because you learned that like two failures ago, which I don't even really look at something like that as a failure, more of, I guess, an experience, um, you know, and then you'll be able to, to be a lot more familiar with that situation, to be able to fix that problem. I'll be like, Oh, I dealt with that, you know, a a couple of houses ago, like, let's do it. Let's get it done. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, one of, one of my uh, fellow partners was just telling a story to an investor group about his first property he had under contract and he walked away during, during uh, the inspection because they found mice and he looks back now and says, Oh my God, that was just an exterminator call away to fix it. And I walked away cause they found mice. I didn't know how bad the mice situation was going to be. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, I would like to think, many people would not be so scared of mice, but, uh, you know, I think it's also just sometimes daunting when people want to get into it where they're like, you know, it's, it's a big investment. It's a lot of money and they'll almost look for any excuse. That's not perfect to give them a, an out because it's just not comfortable for them yet. Yeah. Uh, and so I, you know, I think that's why it helps to partner with people in in this game, you know, real estate, I've often said is a team sport. Yep. It's, uh, takes a lot of people, particularly to do bigger stuff, but even smaller stuff, if it's your, it's all what's big to you, right? So I worked for real estate investment trusts that had 30 billion in assets under management. Well, that's pretty big, at least to me, but there's some, yeah. there's some people, you know, there's some companies out there that might not think that's so big. Um, and then, but as an individual, that seems huge. And you know what, that $200,000 duplex might seem huge if you've never owned a house before. So it's all relative. And uh, I think at least for me, I've always found that finding great mentors, great partners, great network of people can really help you get uh, out of your comfort zone and take those steps that, you know, if you don't take them, you'll just never go forward. So. Yeah. I feel like that really is huge too. I, I want to stem back to uh, something you mentioned a little bit earlier about um, like the mice kind of thing. So like, just kind of like the, pr- the principle with that, you know, of like, just kind of like as you're walking through the house, you know, whether it be during the inspection or, you know, whatever it is, and you find something like that, you know, that isn't really desirable. It's really easy to just get terrified and then, you know, just walk away and be like, all right, no, I'm not going to deal with that. Um, But again, you know, it's, it's the ones who actually like go and try and figure out that problem, um, you know, and see how you can make it work. You know, like I've found yeah. a couple times, like I'm still experiment, eh, experiencing it myself, you know, I unfortunately walked away from a couple, but um, yeah, I mean, like just being able to kind of have those people to ask those questions, you know, and like something right. that in your head, you know, might be throwing off a bunch of red flags, like you ask them and they're like, oh, that's no big deal. You know, like right. I've done that like three times, you know, it's like you just mentioned a minute ago, like what's, 
what looks big to you, you know, in the, the position that you're in. You know, if you've been renting an apartment your whole life or, you know, you're a teenager or whatever, buying a house looks absolutely scary as hell. But, you know, if you bought like a two family or something, a four family might not look that bad. And then all of a sudden, you know, a six or an eight comes in. Yeah. You know, you already have your process. It's just, you know, adapting. Yeah. Just and add just zeros kinda... to the check. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully on both ends. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's a good point, you know, so I look at every time a challenge comes up on a deal, I try to solve it. And yeah. I, there's nothing wrong with walking away if you can't solve it. And that, that gets back to, you know, I, I, for me, it's about having good analysis, good due diligence, good business plan going in, and then executing to the best of your ability. Yeah. And, but in order to get good analysis, good business plan going in, you got to try to solve the hard problems. And even if you don't solve them, you probably learn enough that maybe you solve the next one. And sometimes you got to solve them in a time frame that doesn't work because you got to close or what have you. And, and you have to walk away. And I would much rather, you know, for me, I'd rather walk away from a deal that I'm not sure how to execute yep. than to get into it and just kind of hope I can figure it out. Yeah. Um, but that, it doesn't stop me from trying to solve every one of the problems because the next one that comes around, then I'll know what to do. Because sometimes it just takes longer to find the right people or find the right solutions or find, you know, the right financing or what have you. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's it, like one thing that I'm starting to kind of, like figure out is, you know, where the line is between, you know, dealing with a lot of those problems and like doing that, um, you know, trying to figure out some of those answers, as well as it not really making sense as an investment anymore, mm -hmm. and walking away, you know, like kind of where that line is. And obviously, you know, it's going to be situation specific, but yep. like, you know, at what point do you find out like, you know, if there's like $40,000 worth of uh, you know, repairing joists or something like that in a basement, like, and you have to pay for that, you know, if like the seller doesn't want to move or whatever it is, does that still make sense as an investment? Like, is it even worth it to, to kind of go back and forth? You know, like, where's the kind of like the teeter point, I guess, of going to fix this issue. Yeah. And then also walking away because it's in your best interest because the property doesn't work as an investment anymore, or it doesn't fit that, that goal that you're looking for. Yeah. Look, if the property doesn't fit your goals after you discover that sort of thing, you, absolutely. Walking away is the right answer. Um, but I, I guess for me, I wouldn't get scared of $40,000 of joist damage in and of itself. I would yeah. say, okay, there's $40,000 of joist damage. Do I know it's $40,000? What kind of contingency on that? Should it be $50,000? Okay. And by the way, I'm also going to be taking extra risk doing this. So I better be getting this property for 60 or 70 or $80,000 less because yeah, it's a otherwise, why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I just buy a property that doesn't have this choice problem? Right. You're right. So I, I should make some money for my trouble of taking on this problem. Yep. Right. And, and work with the seller to see, you know, does that work for them? Do they understand that they have a Joyce problem? Do they understand that they won't be able to sell this house uh, at the price they thought because of these issues. And some of them will, and some of them won't. Some will say, eh, it's a really hot market. Somebody else will buy it and I'll get my money one way or the other. And, you know, they can kind of do that in this market. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'd walk away. <laughs> exactly. Yep. You know, but, uh, but just because I found $40,000 of damage or, or repair needs, 
wouldn't bother me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've gone into some properties where we've needed a lot bigger capital investment than that, you know, million yeah. dollars of capital investment. Um, and, you know, but that's part of the business plan. That's exactly. why we can make money on the properties. And these, this was, you know, 70 unit properties. So we're talking about new roofs, restriping parking lots, uh, redoing, you know, interior flooring, updating kitchens, baths, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of things that, but ultimately the business plan shows we put that capital in, we raise the rents and now we've built a lot of value in return, you know, in return for putting that capital in. So in fact, I actually am not that interested in properties that I can't or don't need to put a lot of capital into. Yeah. Because if it's already kind of everything it can be, now what? <laughs> we're only going to make kind of what it makes today, which, you know, for they're going to price it for that. So, yeah. <laughs> so for me, you, you got to find the one where you can put some capital in, increase the value and get a return on your investment you've made. Of course. Yeah. And like oftentimes too, to your point, you know, like if people have a house or, you know, like a big property or whatever, that's cash flowing fine. Everything's all, you know, market rents, everything is literally fantastic. Why are you going to get rid of it? You know, like there's probably a reason that they're going to liquidate that, you know? So yeah. like just kind of finding, I, I don't know. It just, it doesn't really make sense. I mean, like everybody's uh, situations are going to be different, but like, why would you, sell a property that's like literally everything is is great you know like yeah. instead um you know just the like you said like to find those properties where the market rent or it's like a couple hundred dollars less than the mark or you know maybe more than that whatever the rents that are in there are a lot less than what it can be rent uh i'm choking on my words today <laughs> the yeah the rents are a lot less than what they could be basically Right. Um, you know, and be able to put that equity in there and like update the units and like, you know, just just make it a lot more worth it and giving the tenants a lot more value as well for the price that they would be paying. Um, you know, sounds like it can be really rewarding, you know, if depending on how you play your cards. Yeah, I mean, so boy, it's ideal when you can find a place that has below market rent that doesn't really need anything. And all you can do, you just go in and raise the rents, but man, <laughs> those are really hard to find, right? Yeah. So what, what tends to happen is, you know, they're full, they're fully leased, they're making money, they're just below rent. You know, if they're a smart seller, they're gonna, they're gonna consult, you know, a broker or somebody that's going to know the market, and they're going to price it like you've already got the rent increase in there. Yeah. And then, um, so why would they sell? Well, they're going to sell, well, geez, you know, I, I'm getting basically a premium for my, for my place. And, you know, some people are worried about, are we in a real estate bubble or are we on the other end of the cycle or, you know, or maybe they, they moved out of town, they were self-managing, they moved out of town. They're not really inclined to use third-party property management. So there's kind of a lot of reasons people would sell, um, stabilized assets, but uh, they're hard to get at a good price if you can't um, find a way to infuse capital and, and make them uh, add value. Yeah. I think that's, that's what I found anyway. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's really fun to kind of think about too, you know, and especially in this market that we're in right now, you know, people like everybody and their mother knows that, you know, you can sell a house at a premium. You know, if you're in this, the seller's seat, like you're doing pretty okay, you know? Yeah. And like a lot of eager buyers out there, you know, whether they're like first time home buyers or investors, big investors, um, 
yeah you know like everybody kind of knows the this the cards that are out right now and uh, you know just to kind of see like when they want to cash out or or whatever the plan is yeah and there's a, a lot of people that inv- that have been invested a long time in their assets and they've you know they're at a place now where they want the money out because they want to go do other things they want to retire they want to travel they want to do stuff with the grandkids who knows right i mean they just people sometimes they're just looking to to do something else so uh, and then, you know, unfortunately, people pass pass away and pass their assets on to the kids. And the kids, like, I don't, I, mean, I don't want this. Yeah, <laughs> I, my dad used to take care of this building, and he was always <laughs> over there fixing toilets. And, and you know, I, I don't want to do that. I don't really know anything about it. I'm a I'm a doctor. Yeah, yeah. You know, just I don't want to do that stuff. So you know, there, there becomes opportunities, and and that's the thing. It's about finding the finding good opportunities and seeing what you can make of them, and then building a business plan and and going after and and doing it. And you're you're gonna you're gonna get way more no's than yeses. If you're getting all yeses, you're probably paying too much. Yeah, <laughs> unhappy later, but uh, you know because it's not easy. Yeah, definitely. You know, like even like to stem back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, about like even getting things under contract and having to walk away, like. Yep just and extracting the knowledge from that and you know whether like you're only into it for like the price of your inspection or something like that but the lessons you learn from it you're able to carry on to the next one i feel like that's kind of the same with um you know some of these like off market uh and on market actually opportunities you know to even like just to kind of create those opportunities and like you know if things don't work out okay you know that's that's kind of the uh, I guess like the gist of it, you know, I mean, most of these aren't going to work out, but some of the opportunities that like, even if you're able to go and, you know, walk through or whatever it is, and you know, the seller wants like a ridiculous amount, um, just to extract, you know, some of the lessons and like why he wants that amount. And like, you know, like what's, what's important and like really the, just the psychology of it, you know, and to be able to extract those lessons as well, to be able to keep carrying on to those next properties. You know, and eventually you're going to get one, a couple, just from all those, those compounded lessons, just kind of built together um, and just making moves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd be, I'll just give you a great example of that, at least from my, my own recent experience. So I'm, I'm working with, with a partner uh, on a startup called Sweet People. And what we're looking to do is convert hotels into micro housing. So our thesis here is that there are hotels, particularly those in uh, cities that have catered to business travelers that have had a tough time over the last year where business travel is down. And I think it's not coming back as quickly as, well, I just don't think it's coming back very quickly at all, yeah. to be honest with you. So these hotels, um, I believe, represent a good uh, a good price point for the asset that if we can convert it over to multifamily housing and specifically micro housing. So in this case, very small footprint for the units, but still fully and um, full suite. So five appliances, uh, private bathroom, um, you know, high-end design, efficient design, efficient furniture. Uh, so, and then common amenities in these buildings. So whether that be pool, bike storage, other storage, um, restaurant on the first floor, uh, you know, home theater room or, you know, theater room down there, um, those types of things. So really great amenities, really great style, small footprint, 
and a good price point over what you might get around there for as a as a renter, as a tenant. Um, that's our thesis. So we're bidding on properties all the time. Um, and our first one that, man, we thought we had it. We had a great design. It was great building. It was in Chicago. It was empty. Um, we put in what was the highest bid and we were told we were the highest bid. So we're like, this is great. Yes. Get <laughs> oh, yes right. <laughs> and it, it was a huge investment uh, yeah. in terms of both the rehab to get it to where it needed to be and all, and, and the cost of it and all that stuff. So it was a big project. It can be a lot of fun. And they, the seller went with someone else and I was like, what, what's going on? What, why are they going? So we, we had a higher, higher bid. And for them, it was our timeline. We had a timeline that was going to be, you know, we asked for, asked for three months. Truth is it could have been six because we we're looking to get through some zoning stuff. I mean, there's a number of things. This wasn't turnkey because it was a yeah. hotel. There's some parking. There, there was a number of things we had to work through. And, uh, and they went with a lower bidder because that bidder well, had a fund and they had the money and it was going to close, right? Oh, close gotcha. fast. So, so what did I learn from that? I learned, I need to figure out how to close faster. <laughs> I need to, <laughs> right. And I need to figure out financing and things like that to be able to show that I can execute that quickly. And so I've, we've made a lot of progress looking at different, uh, funding alternatives, different partners we can bring in. And so we're continuing to bid. And we're taking, you know, that experience that, uh, you know, that loss and we're figuring out how to be better on the next one. And we're just going to keep doing it till we get them, till we get a good one at a good price. All right, guys, that concludes our Creating Wealth podcast episode for today. I want to thank every single person that has listened this far. It really means a lot to know that people can learn from me and with me as we build wealth together. Hopefully you can take home at least one thing from this podcast that will improve your life just a little bit. If you could, please check me out on social. That's at Kyle Curtin Real Estate on Instagram, Facebook, and I'm on Bigger Pockets. Until next time, let's build together.